The cat stared at him harder than ever. Then it started walking away, and of course, Shasta followed it. It led him right through the tombs and out to the desert side of them. There it sat down, bolt upright, with its tail curled around its feet and its face set towards the desert, toward Narnia in the north, as still as if it were watching for some enemy. Shasta lay down beside it with his back against the cat and his face towards the tombs, because if one is nervous, there's nothing like having your face towards the danger and having something warm and solid at your back. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Kel. I'm Chase. And thank you so much for joining us today. Just a reminder that we are going to be talking about the third book in the Narnian series, The Horse and His Boy. But general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we will go on to tangents, into other stories, into pop culture. Um, And we're going to do our best to give spoiler warnings for this book, for the Narnian series, for anything else that uh, may come up along the way. That's a little far out there. But today... We're going to be discussing chapter six of The Horse and His Boy, Shasta Among the Tombs. Man, crazy. That's exactly where Shasta is. He is among the tombs for at least most of the chapter. Uh, Yeah, like a a good two-thirds of it. Yeah. Uh, Chase, would you mind giving us a summary of this chapter? I would mind, but I'll do it anyways. Well, you know, we've got a podcast, so. (laughs) And I did write the summary, so it's it's fine. Uh, So Shasta has just escaped from the Narnian party. And he's looking out over the roofs of Tashban down from the middle of the city. He sees to the northern wall and beyond to the desert and the mountains where he's going. So he makes his way down through the city, this time attracting no attention as a lone shoeless boy wearing tattered clothes. He crossed through the crowded bridge across the river and out of the city. Makes his way to the edge of the desert where the grass suddenly stops and a sea of sand sits before him. He found the tombs where he was supposed to meet the horses and Erevis a short distance away. It's getting dark and the tombs are eerie and scattered in no particular order. Shasta searched around them to see if his friends were around some corner, but he saw no one. Suddenly, a terrifying noise startled him. It's the horns of the gate closing the city. He's now locked out, alone among the tombs in the dark. He wonders if they had gone on without him, worrying that Erebus might want to leave him, and uh, he has to uh, spend the night alone among the ghouls, among the tombs. And then he's startled again, this time by the feeling of something touching him. He's relieved to find that it's only a very large cat, and though the cat can't talk like a Narnian, it did lead him to the edge of the tombs where he laid down to sleep, comforted against the creature's body. He woke in the middle of the night to find the cat gone, and then another scary sound, this time jackals. Then he saw an almost horse-sized figure, and then it roared and scared the jackals away. Then he looked more closely, and it turned out only to be the cat, smaller again, there to comfort him. The next day, Shasta got up and scavenged for food from a garden and swam in the river as he waited another day for his friends to come and meet him. And as it stretched on again, he began to lose heart. But then suddenly in the distance, he saw two horses that he knew to be Huan and Bree. But it wasn't Erevis leading them. Instead, it was the slave of a Tarkin family. So Shasta hides to see what would happen next. And the chapter ends as he waits to, to see what the heck is going on with these horses. 
Yeah, what is going on? Chase, the, the theme of this chapter is fear. As I like to think of it, this is uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, attempt at kind of having like a horror chapter where there's like several jump scares and, uh, yeah. but it's not like scary for the reader, but just yeah. for the, just for Shasta. There's a few mildly tense moments. So very scary for a children's book. Yeah. Super scary for a children's book. They're going to go play in the tombs. Uh, you know, Shasta is going to get potentially attacked by uh, a cat lion and some ghosts that don't exist. It's great. Sure. I mean, to be fair, what is scarier than spending the night in a graveyard like that? Yeah. All right. Let's personally, but... let's just talk about this. Cause this is the title of the chapter. This is where Shasta's heading, right? So uh, on his way from the palace where he's been, they'd agree to meet at the tombs. Like why did they agree to meet at the tombs? This is such a scary location. Like it's, I think their logic at the beginning was that these tombs would be the only place that no one would come looking for them. No one would find them because everyone is afraid of ghosts, I guess. And yeah, but no also go hang so out with Shasta. Yeah. <laughs> so, so is literally everybody in their party. They just all pretend not to be afraid of ghosts. <laughs> I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Like Shasta is like, he's terrified, but well, it's a weird, it's a weird meeting location because it's so scary. But I guess, you know, we'll get there. So, you know, Shasta jumps out of the window that uh, we he was in last chapter. Uh, you know, the voice that was yelling like, hey, stop. You know, or like, you know, that was coming. I guess we'll never know what Doesn't that was. Matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Our story. <laughs> not important. Will not get addressed. Doesn't matter. This was strictly a voice that was basically, it might as well have been yelling, hey, we need to move the storyline along. Get out of the window. The voice was coming from a gentleman named Plot M. Device. Ah, uh, Plot M. Yeah, Device. Important He's character. Good man. Good man. He, great friends with C.S. Lewis. Plot yes. Device. Weirdly uh, also a kidnapper, but that's just a trend in this book. <laughs> that's C.S. Lewis. Big fan of kidnappers. Uh, give yeah. him a redemption arc. Really uh, makes it more concerning that he used to have children come visit his farm in the countryside, but it's fine. Hey, it's you know not, what? Let's not worry about it. He... Never kidnapped anyone that we're aware of. But we're aware. so, so allegedly. He jumps, allegedly. So he jumps out the window, and thank goodness that Corin was telling the truth because there is indeed a rubbish pile for him to land on. What uh, if the story just ended here? <laughs> Shasta falls to his death from a Narnian window, and they find uh, Corin, what a jokester. The mangled body of the twin of the prince. What a jokester. Corin, there's no trash pile here. Why would you even think that there is a trash pile? Uh, but no, I mean, I think this is a, one. It's like, yeah, thank God he landed on a trash pile. But this is also just like, I think C.S. Lewis is just taking another shot at Tashban, where it's like, yeah, there's a literal just rubbish heap, just a trash pile sitting under like people's windows. Like, it's gross. Yeah. Uh, and so they, he makes his way through the city and like from inside the city, he sees the uh, the first parts of the desert, and it looks like this this great yellowish gray sea that just expands in the in the distance. And he sees some blue things that are probably the mountains. And so he uh, decides to run through. And he, you know, there's this line that I think is it's a really cool line. Uh, I don't know if it was intended, but I like it. it. Says no one bothered to look at a little ragged boy running along bare feet. Yeah, I think. I liked that line too. I think it stood out to me because it tells me a lot about Tashban. Like yeah. It tells me that this is the kind of place that has a lot of poverty. There, there's a lot of 
urchin boys running around barefooted. Mm. And now that there's no horses and stuck up girls around, like Shas is free to kind of go unnoticed. Riff raff, street rat. I don't buy that, Chase. This was is that a, in was that a was that an Aladdin reference? Maybe could have been. Uh, Shasta is one jump ahead of the dra- the trash pile, but uh, he so he runs through. No one notices him, uh, and he makes his way out of the city. And another final parting shot at Tashban, uh, where he's like, "Oh man, now that he was next to running water and he has in fresh air, he was out of the smell and the grossness and the heat uh, of Tashban." Uh, there's a game of thrones line that i won't quote here about the smell of cities that if you know you know it's it's not good not Uh, great not good it's not what you want but he uh so he makes his way out of the city uh and he stands uh, at the edge of this slope and he looks out in the world and he sees the desert and chase i think it's really cool emphasizing how vast and expansive this desert is uh, usually don't get like descriptions of deserts in books, like. Um, but he it, although he apparently C.S. Lewis thinks that we're reading a lot of books about people crossing deserts. We'll get there, but yeah, he he thinks that this is a very common trope, apparently. But Chase, I do have a question for you because he's he's comparing this desert to the ocean, except worse because it's not wet. Uh, Chase, would you rather be stranded in the middle of like let's call it the Sahara Desert, like a huge desert? Or the middle of the ocean? I guess, follow-up question. If I'm in the ocean, do I have a boat? And if I'm in the desert, do I have water and things to keep me sunburned? I will give you, if you're in the ocean, I'll give you, like, Life of Pi-esque boat. Like, a small raft. Uh, And I also have a large cat with me. (laughs) That cat may or may not be Aslan. Spoiler alert. But... But TBD on that. Uh, but no, you're you're just. I would say you're on a big raft. Okay. Equal, the I would say the same amount of provisions for the sum or for the desert or the uh, or for the ocean. I'll give you a. Uh, I'll give you a cloak or something like that to prevent sunburn if you're in the desert. Uh, yeah, because this kind of feels like a what's the worst way to die? Yeah, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> which one's worse i feel like i'd have a better chance in the ocean than the desert personally but i don't have anything to back that up on because either way no drinking water no drinking water can't drink the ocean just psa don't try it do not do um, it and desert like you're just as likely to find it as an oasis as you are to have a boat come ac- across you and pick you up Either way, it's not good odds. Straight in the middle yeah. of the Sahara Desert and straight in the middle of the ocean, not a good time. Yeah. See, I think I'd pick desert because, yeah. like, if I'm on a raft, like, that's all I have. Like, the ocean's huge, man. Like, I guess if you're in the desert, you might find a giant buried library with a huge sentient owl. That's true. That It's, it's always a greater than zero percentage chance. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, that is something that could be found. But with all that to say, so they he looks at the expansive desert, decides that looks terrible, uh, and then he goes back to the tombs. And this is so creepy, man! Like he he, this is when CSS really starts to uh, egg in the 
the like the, the fear and the scariness because he's like each doorway to these 12 massive tombs uh opens to absolute blackness uh and it's just super dark you know this is a really scary scary setting for him it's just real creepy he walks up just as the sun is going down he assumes that his friends are going to be on the other side, but he's not sure. He's got to look around all the corners. He's just all alone, and then suddenly, <laughs> just terrifying horror noises. Uh, turns out uh, this is just this is the first jump scare for Shasta. Turns out it's just the gates closing. Uh, and uh, work a lot better as a movie or TV show than as written, because again. We know what's happening. Yeah. We can uh, read the rest of the sentence and immediately be told that it's not anything dangerous. Right. But it is interesting, like, reading this through Shasta's eyes and then C.S. Lewis, throughout this chapter, he interjects a lot more than he has the rest of this book uh, with his own, with the narrator's words uh, several times. And it's almost like this is his, like, chapter on describing fear to kids uh, and, like, how to recognize fear how to be like hey it is okay to be afraid sometimes and then how to like overcome fear because uh, he goes like there's a great difference between a noise heard letting you in with you and your friends in the morning and a noise heard alone at nightfall shutting you out where it's like hey like it's reasonable that he was scared like he's alone it's dark this is unexpected like uh, it's, it's okay for him to be afraid here yeah and i think it's interesting how the way that the fear is described goes back and forth between you've got one paragraph that is this great noise and it's, it's a terrible sound. His heart gives a great jump. He has to bite his tongue to keep from screaming. But then the next paragraph or really the same paragraph, you have him afraid that they left without him. And yeah. this idea that, well, Erebus would probably leave without me, which there's an aside be like, no, nah, he doesn't actually know her that well. She really wouldn't. But Shasta believes that she would. Mm-hmm. And and it's that kind of back and forth between physical fear and social fear. Like the like danger of bodily harm of whatever this noise might be or whatever might be lurking in the desert or lurking in one of these tombs. And the fear of abandonment or not being able to make it or the decision to go it alone like he gathers up a bunch of fruit at one point it's like well i guess i'm just gonna have to wander through the desert by myself but it's it's interesting to see those two different sides because everyone's experienced both but one actually is more pressing and the reality is more dangerous for shasta if it was true if he was actually left alone then like whatever's in these tombs because they're just dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, I, I love the way that he plays with this idea of fear in this chapter because immediately after he muses about, you know, Erebus and, and the gang like leaving him and being afraid of being alone, he immediately has his brushes up against seaweed in the ocean moment uh, where he freaks out because something touched his leg um, and he, you know, assumes that he's about to die. Uh, and he freaks out. He yells. He yells for help. He says, Al, uh, which I think is a really funny thing where it's like, literally, he just gets brushed up. And then he, you know, does what is sensible. And he just looks up and realizes it's just a cat, albeit a very, very large cat. Yeah. Kel, how big is this cat? Like, 
It's bigger than a tabby, smaller than a lion. I mean, to be fair, the lion was a horse-sized lion. The lion was a horse-sized lion, which is, I don't think that big, like, like, like tall for sure. It definitely bigger than a normal lion. It, I kind of get like, like medium to large size dog for this cat. For this cat, maybe yeah. like a maybe like a Great Pyrenees cat, like a hundred pound cat. That yeah, that's a big cat. It's a that's big a cat. cat. That's that's a Garfield over here. Uh, so uh, we get Garfield rubbing up against uh, Shasta's leg, uh, I and I had a similar scare to this just last night, Co. <laughs> because I had some people over and we were out on my back porch by the fire pit and then suddenly felt something brushing against my leg, similar, terrified because what the heck is touching me? And my neighbor's cat had wandered into my yard and was trying to... <laughs> Dude, real talk, cats are stealthy, man. Like, cats can sneak up on you. Yeah. And freak you out, dude. Like, especially if you're wearing, like, shorts or something and you feel the fur against your leg. You're like, what? Yeah, which these cats have a history of sneaking up on me in the dark. One of them has broken into my house before. They've tried to get in the door when I've get, gotten home several times. These I know, cats really want to live with me. I know that when you say this cat broke into your house, it probably meant that, like, it found, like, an open door or a window and break its way in. I like to think that this cat has like a set of tools where it's picking locks. It's got like a magnetic sensor to, you know, defeat any like door locks or anything like that. Are you saying that it's a cat burglar, Cal? God, you are killing it right now with cat puds. This is incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it was fully, someone was fixing my sink and they left the front door open. And then I found a cat in my room. This is, this is everything I could hope for. I, I want to see a cat with like a little like a little mask around its eyes so that you don't know that it's a cat. Uh, because I feel that's like I've watched that it. Disney Channel original movie already. It's I think that's <laughs> is, a thing. Is this was this on Dora or the Backyardigans? Maybe I don't know. Um, I but, feel like there was a Spy Cat movie shortly spy after cat. Spy Kids. I'm this pretty is, sure there was a Spy Cat like or Cats versus Dogs might have been the uh, actually hey, movie. Well, Spy Cat. If it hasn't been made, let's get on that. Cause I, I would watch Spy Cat 3D. Can you can you imagine how many great jokes we can make? Like it, the, the movie the, the that limit is, is exclusively cat puns. Yes. That's all you need. The limit doesn't exist, Chase. It's so good. But uh we get back to our story. Uh and you know, he's relieved after the second jump scare that it's just a cat, just a huge cat, a massive cat, and he goes. I suppose you're not a talking cat. Well, Shasta, you're never going to believe this. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. And if you're an audience member and you don't want a giant spoiler spoiler alert, this cat isn't just a cat. It's Aslan. Yeah. The, which it's funny that he says that and the cat doesn't talk. Because at this point, it's literally just Aslan messing with them. Yeah. So... We we talked about this a little bit off pod where it's like this is him like you know the, the him like kind of changing form a little bit. I like to think that you know if you've ever read through the Gospels and Jesus post resurrection for sure screws with his disciples 
where yeah. like and like his followers like the first person to come and and see Jesus post resurrection is Mary and Mary Magdalene she goes and to, to zoom and Jesus disguises himself as a gardener like it's not like he's just chilling uh, as Jesus she like thinks he's a gardener and gets her to tell him the entire story of Jesus like and he's like pretending to like you know clip hedges like uh-huh tell me more and like just faking it and like then he like reveals himself he's like what's up i'm jesus and like i like to think that this is aslan post-resurrection just screwing with people yeah what i love about that story is that it's you're right it's not the only one where he does something for a prolonged period of time. he literally like he walks like seven miles on the road walks seven miles with them sits down for dinner with them like go yeah go on wait so what happened and they're like you haven't heard about this jesus guy let me tell you all about him he's like mm, yeah wow this fish is good here would you like some bread and then the <laughs> oh, fries jesus here jesus here i'm back they all lose their minds yeah but this is like this is for sure just aslan screwing with people because he can because why not uh so this is Aslan. Uh, he, after, you know, Shasta muses if he's a talking cat or not, he leads Shasta outside of the tombs because it's less scary. Um, and Which he, I'd like to just point out there, yeah. both, and I'll connect this so that it's not a very long part, sure. both the horn and this gave me very, like, rescuing the captives from hell type pictures. because. So listeners who aren't super Bible people, uh, being locked outside of the city is a biblical picture for hell. And then this idea of the cat Aslan, the uh, God cat, as I will call him later, uh, he, him leading Shasta out of the tombs, this picture of being led out of death into life or towards Narnia in the North, which is in this story kind of the end point the the heaven of this story like both of these pictures really kind of like put up flags for me of like oh that picture like has a little hint of that and i think it's actually on purpose but i'm not positive i like it even if it's not on purpose i think that's a really really good uh analogy i think that's fun because I like, it also gave me kind of Psalm 23 being led to still waters vibe of like, he's being led out of the death, out of the tombs into a place that has an air of safety to it. I think we should change the lyrics to the lion and the lamb to the lion and the cat. Um, Isn't the lion already the cat? Kind of. That's debatable. Maybe but the lion and the horse? The lion and the cat. Lion and the cat. So uh, they laid like he leads Shasta out of the tombs. And I really like this line. This was our opening quote. Um, in the last line of this quote, they face Narnia, they face the north. And it says, um, he Shasta lays down with his back against Aslan cat and uh, with his face toward the tomb. Uh, because if one is nervous, there's nothing like your face or having your face toward the danger and having something warm and solid at your back. I think this is a really like deep line, like C.S. Lewis speaking to kids again, speaking about fear. It's like, hey, the best way to handle fear is like face it head on, 
having support in like behind you, having people who you can trust to like support you, but going directly at it. Don't let fear, you know, creep around the side. Don't let it get into your mind. Like just go head on. I was like, this is really, I like this wisdom. C.S. Lewis, look at you pumping in some good knowledge for, for the youths. Yeah. Although everyone knows if you're sleeping in an unfamiliar place, you need your feet towards the door. Yeah. Well, facing, I mean, I picture him like he's facing, like he's leaned up against Aslan with his feet and his, like, you know, he's facing there because he's on the ground. Uh, this is the same reason, like, if you have, like, if you're putting your bed in your room, you don't have your back to the door. Like, you got to have your feet to the door. Like, you, you, you're like, you don't have, like, the back of your head to the door. You have your feet towards the door so you can see an intruder and you carry a bat next to your bed so you could kill them. Uh, I personally like him. Actually. <laughs> Chase has got a letter opener. Uh, that he is ready to do damage with. It is it is within reaching distance of my bed, which is just out of frame on the Zoom call. Yeah, and it will remain so. I've got I've got a baseball bat next to mine, so uh, you know if someone brings a gun, you know I'll throw my bat and hopefully hit them in the head. Uh, but it is what it is. Uh, so uh, we uh, you, we have this like you know talk about fear and you know being being comforted and whatnot and shasta falls asleep and we get our third jump scare which is shasta being awoken by a terrifying noise and he realizes that the large cat is gone uh and c.s lewis says that this noise is probably a jackal but i kind of wish that he didn't tell us what it was um i kind of wish that he had left that unknown because it's scarier when it's unknown uh, it's because it's yeah. like, ooh, this this noise could have been anything. This noise could have been Tash. Yeah, that could have been a cool thing. But also, doesn't Tash look a little bit like a jackal in the last battle, or am I making that up? I thought he was like a giant bird dragon. I think he's like a mishmash of a lot of things. He's a he's he's not great looking. Because I was like, when I first heard the noise, I was like, ooh, like is this like a Tash thing? And he's like going for this like shriek. It's like this noise he's never heard. And then it's like, it's probably a jackal. And I was like, oh man, well, okay. Uh, but I like in my, my personal headcanon, it's, it's Tash. And we see uh, Aslan Cat going out and scaring him off. Because then immediately after this, uh, CS uh, told us, tells us that uh, it's this giant, this horse-sized lion uh, goes and scares the the creature off with a giant roar, and then he starts coming into uh, coming toward Shasta, and then oh, it's, it's just the cat. Yeah, it's kind of the picture of like he sees the silhouette of what looks like a giant lion roaring, and he hears the roar, but then it walks towards him, and yeah, it, it's just his friend. But yeah. as as we know from having read the end of this book. Uh, this is Aslan taking multiple shapes throughout the story. And yeah, uh, it, it's a really interesting piece to the way that, uh, that Aslan interacts with Shastir. I mean, we yeah. get into that more and further up and further in, but absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And again, we dive into the psychology of fear here uh, where Shasta has this choice. Like, does he go through the tombs toward the river uh, and like that, like CS is like, that would be what was more reasonable and more rational, but he actually allows us to rationalize with Shasta. We're like, Hey, 
like you got to put yourself in Shasta's shoes. Like, yeah, would it have been more re- reasonable to go to the river where there's more people, where it's safer? Yeah, but he's also that means he has to go through the unknown terror of being th- in the like with the ghosts and all the unknown scares of the tombs, as opposed to the known terror of the desert and the known terror of the lion. Uh, and he's like, that's th- that's what he would have chosen. But turns out, luckily enough, like even though he knows that it's a lion, he goes through this really interesting dialogue uh, when he thinks that he's about to be killed uh, because it's a lion. He knows it. Everyone knows it. The reader knows it. Aslan knows it. Uh, everyone knows that he's about to be killed. And he goes, oh, I know it's a lion. I'm done. I wonder, will it hurt much? I wish it was over. I wonder, does anything happen to people after they're dead? <laughs> he's getting real existential here. It's a uh, casual time to uh, ask this question for the first time. C.S. Lewis immediately just, this is his way of going, do you know what happens when you when you die? Do you know Jesus slash Aslan slash the God Cat? Side note for Christian parents to have conversation with child at end of chapter. <laughs> insert, insert gospel presentation here. Uh, and so it's just, it's funny. Because he's is like this is way more existential than Shasta has been the entirety of like we've known him. But you know it is what it is. But it turns out nothing to fear. It was just a giant cat all along. Uh, insert uh, you know Cardi B. That's suspicious right here. Uh, where it's like hmm, this giant cat could have been a lion. You know who else is a lion? That other lion that Aslan met. Uh, also Aslan. Uh, but. Also the previous Aslans. <laughs> also the previous Aslans. All 300 of them. Uh, he's uh, that, he's, full, he's going full Loki at this point. Just yeah. projecting himself. Coming soon to Disney+. Plus. But, uh, no, so he realizes this is a cat, and he's so grateful because apparently this cat just, you know, scared away whatever creature was chasing him and was, you know, going to hurt him. And he goes, I'll never do anything nasty to a cat again as long as I live. I did once. You know, I threw stones at a half-starved, mangy old stray. And then the cat scratches Shasta. And this cat, we know, is Aslan. Yeah, as which we don't know that at this point in the book. But in retrospect, what this an is, odd thing. super weird. Which, there will be more weirdness coming up later, which we don't have to get into that now. But what, what does this mean? <laughs> I, is that a fair question to even ask? I think that's fair. Like, I, I'm very confused. Like, this is not something, like, like later we're going to see, you know, Aslan execute some, like, very retributive, like, justice. And, like, he's going to be like, hey, this is what happened. This is what you got which is an interesting theological yeah. concept already. Yeah, we can get into the issues and the but, problems with that. But this one is this one is like it's a little playful feeling but also a little bit disciplinary. Yeah, it's it's for sure a little bit of both and you're like it just feels weird and out of place. And also if this cat is huge, like a little scratch could do yeah. like some major damage. Like I mean, I've been scratched by a normal house cat and I don't like it. Like like they can break skin for sure. Uh, You know, not like, it's just, it's a strange choice here uh, to make Aslan like a disciplinarian. Uh, But again, this is the 1950s. 
And so maybe your, your Jesus has to be a little bit of a disciplinarian. Uh, But he, uh, they, they go back to sleep and the next morning he wakes up and Aslan cat is gone because as we know, Aslan comes and goes as he pleases. Mr. Beaver would let us like us to know that. Uh, he's not a tame cat. Was there ever any cat to begin with? Was, was it all it? part of Shasta's imagination? Could have been. Uh, Does the cat but, live in the tombs and feed on the bodies of dead kings? Who can say? Who can say? Uh, all we know is that cat is not a tame cat, but it's a good oh. one. Uh, but uh, he, this is actually you know really wise move. So uh, he looks out into the desert sees the mountain and sees the direction that, you know, by judging off of what uh, Salopad the Raven said, like he recognizes what direction they need to go. And so he marks the direction so that he can find it and that his friends uh, can find it when they're, whenever they show up. Uh, and so he points that out and then he goes and uh, does a little raiding uh, as Bree would call it. So apparently Shasta's over this whole theft thing. Uh, he got over that pretty quickly. Um, which an interesting note there, he calls it raiding when he's just feeding himself now, but later on when he thinks about actually going off by himself, he calls it stealing if he was yeah. enough food to go by himself. Yeah. And it's, it's subtle, but it's kind of interesting to think that the difference there is Shasta hopefully waiting. That's raiding justified all that when it's, kind of obstinate i guess i'm gonna have to do it myself then it's stealing yeah it's it's interesting uh you know it goes but he uh after he does this he goes and he steals some food he goes to the river takes a drink and then he takes a bath uh and then he's like oh shoot my friends could be at the tombs and he dresses really quickly and runs back to the tomb and he gets all hot and thirsty and sweaty and it says that basically like the the good of his bath was was done and i just got back from middle school camp chase and uh i'd like to say this is an all too common experience like it's like oh man we we just showered and everyone ate and like hydrated up and now oh let's go play gaga ball for like three hours and like let's go jump around and get sweaty it's like your shower was worthless because you smell again this is terrible which to be fair that a lot of times is on the youth group for scheduling events 100%. right after cleanup times. Absolutely. It's like, you don't, for me, don't schedule like cleanup until you're done for the day. Like you're, you don't have anything that you're going to get gross doing again, but whatever. That's uh, it's neither here nor there. So yeah, he, uh, so he, he wastes his bath and then he starts thinking about Corin, his, uh, his twin brother that he doesn't know is his twin brother yet. Um, and, you know, talking about like that and, you know, what happened to him and what do the Narnians think about him? And, you know, if they're unhappy with this rando knowing their plans, probably. Um, is very much in a place of everybody hates me. Yeah. Everybody hates Shasta. Uh, it's just how it goes. And great sitcom though. Great sitcom. Uh, he starts to realize the flaws of their plan where he's like, huh we never really set like a set time. Like how long do we wait at this tomb my whole life? Like this, this could be rough. Um, I mean, he he could go full Ray from star Wars, just counting down the days, etching it onto the sides of a tomb that he's living in. Just wait. You get real dark. They're going to come back. I promise. He could be the hermit living in the tombs. Yeah. 
Oh man, he him and him and Aslan cat just chilling in the tombs, eating dead people. It'd be, it'd be a keeping, different keeping story, secret. but one I'd still keeping still secrets in their eyes that no one knows. Uh, it's great, um, but. He, as he's starting to think about how long he's going to wait, he decides that if they're not back by the end of the next day, that he's going to just cross the desert. And C.S. Lewis goes, it was a crazy idea. And if he had read as many books as you have about journeys over deserts, he never would have dreamed it. But Shasta has read no books at all. So one, how many books about desert crossings are there and have you read? Because I have not read many. And two, why is this like? Do you need to dunk on Shasta for being poor and illiterate again? Like this seems unnecessary. I mean, I haven't read any books about desert crossing, but I have seen the movie Holes, and That's true. I feel like I learned a lot. And still, would have told me it's a bad idea to cross the desert without at least some preserved beaches. Lesson one: You're not digging to find something; you're digging to, to build character. So. That's, uh, I think that's what I learned from that movie. Yeah. Uh, I also learned that uh, if you put uh, snake venom into your nail polish, it leaves a mark. That's true. Also, if you find yourself in the presence of some yellow spotted lizards, you better have some onions handy. Sure. Absolutely. Everyone knows this. Common knowledge. Uh, but, so he, <laughs> it's just like, why dunk on Shasta here? It's like, Shasta's never read a book. He can't read. What an idiot. He's going to cross the desert, you fool. This is uh, fully C.S. Lewis's English teacher propaganda. Yeah, read a book. <laughs> but I can't. Too bad. So this is, <laughs> this is how I imagine that conversation going. Uh, but he, uh, the, the chapter ends with him like, you know, going, like having these musings and then he sees, oh, look at that. It's Brian Huynh. Yay. Oh, but they're being led by not, not, a, not Erebus, but a strange man uh, who looks like he's a well-dressed and well-armed slave. Uh, and he's conflicted because he's like, is this a trap? Should I go and engage him and, you know, try to set my friends free or should I stay hidden and safe? Yeah. And then the chapter ends. Yeah. It's, it's almost like we're going to find out the backstory to this next chapter almost like that but who's to say find out next week on next week's podcast uh we'll, we'll let you know the answer is literally part of next chapter that's called that's called baiting the hook chase leave them wanting what a great more. tease yeah uh that everyone's going what's gonna happen is what's is this are they okay everyone wants to know about the horse and his boy because we're finally getting the horse back with his boy that's that's good. It was about to become the boy and his cat, but <laughs> which is another another book that I would again read. I'm pretty sure that's just the rest of the Narnian series. <laughs> that's that's just normal. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chase, you have anything else before we before we dive further up and further in? Uh, not today. Not today. Excellent, Chase. Would you like to start us off? I would love to. I'm going to talk to you guys this morning about the two faces of Godcat. Um, mm, yeah, yes. like, like we talked about in this chapter, uh, and like we keep talking about with our spoiler alerts of Aslan being every cat we meet in this story, which is a fun general just blanket statement that will continue to be true. Um, yeah, 
in this chapter, we see Shasta's new companion take two distinct roles. So he is at first the soft comforter. He's the one who finds Shasta in the midst of the dark, scary, death-filled tombs and leads him to comfort and safety and rest. And then he is the fierce protector that wards off the enemies and with a roar, with a presence, with even as we get briefly a swipe of violence, he keeps Shasta from harm's way and provides uh, protection that gets him through the night. And these kind of two sides, I just thought were interesting as a way to present Aslan or uh, Catslan in this chapter because, <laughs> sorry, uh, because this is one of the interesting paradoxes of the Christian faith that God is not either or a fierce defender or a uh, personal comforter, he is both. He is both father and he is warrior. He is lion and the lamb. Um, and so that is where this, I, this picture of Aslan serving in multiple roles uh, in his story really brings out some of the layers that C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate about what the Christian God is like. And then when you mix that into the broader context of the story of this is Aslan, so the God of, of Narnia, interacting with people in everyday life, not presenting himself as Aslan, but coming into their life to provide these, these, I guess, ways of being to them within contexts that they don't expect him to just brings in all these layers that I thought, I think are really interesting for the presentation of that. So I just wanted to kind of pull out that thread and, and look at it a little bit more closely for this chapter. Love it. The hypocatsic union. Uh, yes. It's good. So uh, my further up and further in is overcoming fear, especially in the dark, uh, the fear of the dark. Uh, most good fantasy stories, especially those where there is some sort of quest, there's some sort of obstacle, this goal to obtain, uh, must at some point deal with how the main character is going to conquer fear. If you have a main character who is fearless, doesn't ever have any kind of like terror that they have to overcome then it's not relatable. It's not exciting. Like people deal with fear all the time. And obviously that's going to deal with the practical, tangible sides of fear. Like we talked about with, uh, you know, brushing against something with, you know, there's a loud noise that scares you, but then there's also the existential fears, the fears of loneliness, fears of failure, fears of, you know, whatever it might be. And this is often represented by darkness. There is something in the darkness that you have to overcome. There's something uh, there. Uh, if it's Luke in the cave on Dagobah where he faces uh, the you know specter version of Darth Vader and turns out that it's himself because he is, his biggest fear is that he would become Darth Vader. There's Frodo and Sam uh, as they you know are in the cave with Shelob, the giant spider, as they're trying to get into uh, the realm of Sauron as they're trying to destroy the ring that they're, this is their, their fear uh, being surrounding them like a web. Uh, and it's, it's enclosing them. It's suffocating uh, Harry in the forbidden forest multiple times throughout the book. And uh, the first in the books where the first book, that's the, you know, the, the scary place. That's where he's going to interact first with Voldemort. 
uh, you know, first not being when he was being tried to be killed as a baby, but uh, first time since then, like that's his first interaction. And that's where he's going to start facing these fears. And that's also where he's going to face Voldemort when he, spoiler alert, goes to his death. Uh, and he has to face and overcome that fear. Uh, this idea of overcoming darkness is a very biblical illusion where you see in John 3, immediately after the famous John 3.16 passage, where Jesus is talking about light and darkness, that we hide things in the dark, that that's where sin and death and decay are, where the light is where life and you know health and these good things are. But there is a reason that the darkness is associated with fear and those that which is not good and light is just, is associated with hope and freedom from fear. Um, and I think it's important that in these fantasy stories we recognize the uh, the purpose of overcoming fear in the dark. Yeah. Well, Cal, I just heard a loud noise and I'm terrified. Yeah. Oh. So I'm going to tell you where you can find this podcast so we can get out of here. Um, so you can continue to find us wherever you find podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Audible, Google, all the different places. And while you're there, we would love it if you would leave a rating and a review. Five stars, please. It helps us to get our podcast and these discussions in front of other people. And you can also find us on Instagram at Chronicles of Podcast, where you can see when we post new episodes and engage with us uh, whenever you'd like. So until next time. Uh, yeah. Don't be don't, guys, don't be scared if something brushes against your earlobes. It was just this podcast. Everyone curl up with your cat and uh go to sleep now. Take a nap. A cat nap? Some would say. The hyper the hypostatic union of yes. 100% god, 100% cat. That honestly that is a summation of the premise of Narnia. That's really funny. And I love that joke because yeah. it's so theologically like it's so ridiculous, but it, I'm, I'm for it. Yeah. Weirdly accurate. It's, it's not inaccurate. The, uh, the hippocatic union. Hippest cat it. That's, that's the thing that just was said. I love it. it. It exists. Hypocasic union.